Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, I've got Shiloh with me here this week. Uh, Last week he said he would be gone on a trip, and then those plans got canceled because he got something. I don't know. How you doing, Shiloh? I'm, I'm doing much better now, but it's been a rough few days. So yeah, I think just a, just a rough cold as I, as I think all that happened. But yeah, it wasn't fun going through it, but we canceled our family trip and it'd be a blessing in disguise. Yeah. In any case, I'm glad to, to be doing these sections with you. We're doing section 89, 90, 91, 92. So this is the notorious section 89, otherwise known as the word of wisdom. Really in the running for most controversial section of the Doctrine and Covenants, although probably 132 wins. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, that'll be that'll be fun when we get to that one. This is, yeah, one of the more controversial. This is one of those things that everyone has an opinion on, whether or not they really think they do or not, or how well informed they are. And so I think we have a, a good discussion lined up that... We don't try to hammer out all of the the nitpickiness of what everything means, but kind of take a, a different approach at it, which I think we'll have fun with. But yeah, definitely one of the more controversial ones. Yeah, you know, Section 89 is, uh, you know, like we said, otherwise known as the Word of Wisdom, is the section that is the basis for the current practice and codification of what we call the Word of Wisdom in the regular church, I guess you could say, in the in the usage and, and practice, religious practice of the church. There's quite a bit more nuance and particularity to what the section actually says versus how it's practiced by the majority of, of members, or at least understood maybe by the majority of members. And um, like you said, uh, I think that there's as many interpretations of the word wisdom as there are people. <laughs> and so I've always thought it it rather interesting just from a administrative standpoint for the temple question to simply be, do you obey the word of wisdom, right? <laughs> and any leader that goes beyond uh, that simple question is is probably just asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as many interpretations as there are members. Right. Yeah, section 89, very, very interesting section. The historical context to this is relatively deep compared to other sections that we've discussed. And so we'll get into some of that and uh, some of the language usage, the, you know, the, the treatment of the, the different substances and food and so forth. All it sits pretty neatly in a, in a historical context that's, that's very interesting beyond what we typically learn in the manuals about, you know, how the revelation came about. There's, there's more to the broader regional and national history going on there. Section 90 is a section that treats the first presidency as it comes to be known. These three men, Joseph Smith, Frederick G. Williams, Sidney Rigdon, and what their responsibility is to be as members of First Presidency. We get the introduction of this concept of the keys of the kingdom. Now, 
you know, obviously this it finds its roots in the book of Matthew where Christ talks about giving the keys to Peter. But exactly what is meant in a Latter-day Saint context, it's hard to say whether it's very well formed or conceptualized at this time in 1833. It definitely becomes more of a, a thing that's spelled out and articulated as you move in to the post-Kirtland Temple phase, and then especially into Nauvoo, and, and the more and more focus on the priesthood as this mode of worship and way that ordinances are brought about and so forth. So keys start having more of a role there. But the concept here is becoming more introduced as tied to a specific authority and office in the church. Then we uh, move over to section 91, which discusses the Apocrypha. But the broader language of this section is probably uh, one of my favorite commentaries just on the concept of scripture overall. And so uh, there's some great things there. Section 92, not a bunch of things to dig into there, maybe just some historical footnotes to the language that's used in it. So starting off with section 89, I was looking over a lot of the the history to this, um, not just, again, the context that it's couched in, but then how this became, the word of wisdom became viewed and practiced and discussed throughout the early church, particularly Joseph Smith's life. When it first came into being, it was taken pretty seriously, and then it kind of was a roller coaster type of thing. There were times when it was emphasized more than others. You know, sometimes Hiram would come out and say, Oh, this is really important. We all need to obey this. And other times he would be like, Eh, it's no big deal. And Joseph Smith would do the same thing. <laughs> There'd be times he'd be like, Hey, this is really important, guys. We need to do this. And other times he'd be like, Eh, it's no big deal. Let's drink some tea, you know? <laughs> And so right. <laughs> um, it is very, very interesting how that all plays out. There's um, a pretty good summary treatment of that sort of historical timeline chronology of of how the Word of Wisdom fit in early church history in the, uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project. It's called Joseph Smith's Revelations. And it's, it's a, a much longer treatment of the historical context of this section. And so I, I would really recommend anybody interested in that to go read up on that. It, it has some interesting things. But I know that uh, you, Shiloh, have, have looked at some other historical contexts of the section that I think would be really helpful too. Yeah. So I had found out years ago about the cholera outbreak that was going on at the time. And cholera, for those who don't know, is a really nasty bacteria. <laughs> and they didn't know anything about it. But Come to find out, cholera is transmitted through tainted water. Usually it has come into contact with some kind of sewage. It spreads through the water system. And in the day and age, or in 1832 rather, a very specific time, it had come across Lake Erie in from Canada into Cleveland. And Cleveland, during this time when the Word of Wisdom is is just, just after the Word of Wisdom, it's going on just before the Word of Wisdom in 1833. So there in 1832, it is coming into Cleveland. Kirtland is only about, what, five, maybe six miles out of yeah, Cleveland? Right there, maybe, right yeah, maybe 10 miles. But then it's all, Kirtland is only another five miles or so from Lake Erie. So it's really close right there by the, by the shore there as well. So this is definitely in that time and place. But Temperance was this movement. So it's called the temperance movement that had, had been growing and it even come into Kirtland just prior to the church. But this is really a prohibition movement. 
where they had started coming out against alcohol and and about drinking. And so this was a really, really big push. But it had actually, the temperance movement in Kirtland had kind of died off right before uh, the saints had got there, or really when they when they got there. So there's some evidence that the early saints up here before Section 89 were maybe bringing in some drinking habits or that they were more used to drinking at the time people would drink alcohol uh, just a lot it, i mean there was a lot of people who were just drinking it was the culture of the time and even some of the latter day saints were doing this as well but when the temperance movement had come into kirtland and had moved into the area it was really targeting against alcoholism and that whole way of life when the cholera outbreak happened it's really fascinating because it spreads through the water, but on all the notices that they were spreading about cholera, it had, you know, they were talking about, you know, I have one pulled up in here in front of me, but it says, notice, preventatives of cholera published in order by the sanitary committee under the sanction of the medical council. Be temperate in eating and drinking. So right then and there, you have this whole temperance coming back in and the lack of drinking with this to, to be able to cure this, this ailment. They didn't know how this thing was trans, transferred and how this thing was caused. And then the next line, it says, avoid raw vegetables and unripe fruit. And so that's fascinating because in the word of wisdom, we get this whole eat the, the fruit in the season thereof. You know, it's like don't eat raw fruit or don't eat fruit that's not, that's unripe. And so then at that point, it also has an, an abstention from cold water when, when heated. And so there's this whole movement against hot drinks that had been that's been spirited, and so the temperature of drinks and how and how those temperature of drinks will uh, will affect this, and then it gets into ardent spirits, and if habit have rendered from indispensable to make much less than usual from your standard eating habits. So there's a lot of things that were going on there with the cholera outbreak that we begin to see make their way really kind of into the text here of the Word of Wisdom. And to kind of top it all off, what's fascinating is in the medical journals at the time, they also have this passage from Isaiah, this whole run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Or is it, is it walk and not be weary, run and not faint? But it, no, you from had it right a, the first time. <laughs> they have it right the first time? Okay. Where that is actually in the medical journals for how to determine if someone is healthy or not. And so that's part of the whole thing about cholera to determine if someone is over it, if they can follow this passage from the Bible. Which, fascinating, it appears in section 89 as well. That's one of the blessings of following this new eating habit. And so, you know, just the, just the time and place. You have the cholera outbreak of 1832 happening, and a lot of people are dying just before uh, this is revealed and this is given in uh, the early part of 1833. All of the main issues dealing with cholera and a lot of the leaflets that are going around find their way into the very specifics of what they're talking about in the Word of Wisdom, and even the blessings and like the medical journals that they're reading about how to be able to determine if people are healthy are also the same kind of verbiage that we read here in the blessings and the later verses. So just kind of interesting how, how you can tell this is very much on Joseph's mind, so that as these ideas are formulating, he's very much still in this, like what was revealed several years before, that you need to study this out in your heart and your mind kind of a thing. And so a lot of these revelations end up taking in an adaptation and the flavor of the day of the things that he's thinking about. He's studying these things out and then trying to formulate and finding out what the best way to to do this through the revelation and the inspiration that he's getting. So pretty interesting. Yeah, and and like you were saying, there's 
there's a lot that we could go into, you know, in in the section itself. But I I don't know how much benefit there will be to that, just because I don't I don't think I have a whole lot new to add to the discussion of the word of wisdom. It's been going on for a long time. One of the things that that we often talk about in in regards to the word of wisdom is an abstention from alcohol just outright, right? And the text actually doesn't say that, right? It, it's referring specifically to wine and strong drink. Now, strong drink is distilled liquor. It's drinks that specifically or purposely have the alcohol content increased beyond their fermentation levels. So you actually take, you ferment something and then you distill it to increase the alcohol content level, a whiskey or, or whatever, right? Whereas something that's a mild drink still has what we today would call an alcoholic beverage or, or a decent alcohol content like beer, but it's not considered a strong drink. I say all this, you know, everybody that knows stuff about alcohol knows this already, but I grew up Mormon. And so a lot of the stuff I didn't know <laughs> growing up, right? I'm, I'm very alcohol ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is all to say that um, this verse going over to verse 17 has, has been fascinating to me because verse 17 actually specifically endorses mild drinks made from barley, which is by another name, beer. But culturally, we've come to this conclusion that beer is against the word of wisdom when it's it's actually specifically endorsed here when you get to the cultural context. Now, I have no personal interest or taste for beer whatsoever. One time when I was a missionary, um, some people gave us some uh, non-alcoholic beer and it was disgusting. Now, maybe that's just because non-alcoholic beer is disgusting, but I have, I've had no interest or, or uh, palate for it ever since. <laughs> 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 I have also had friends that have that have volunteered it, that have offered it. <laughs> There's the word I'm looking for. They've <laughs> offered it. They've had some friends that have offered it, and and I've, I've I'm like no alcohol. It says right there on the front, so I've taken a sip. I'm like, hmm. Well, I, <laughs> I'm like, how how close is this to the real taste? Yeah, and they're like, yeah. well, it's well, it's non-alcoholic, but uh, you know, it tastes like it tastes like beer. And I'm like, well. I have, I've never, this is one of the easier, I think, revelations for me personally, because <laughs> I just, I've never, I, this is not my, this is not my hill to die on. This is not my temptation. Like, like there, I have like a whole other litany of temptations. This is, this has never been my temptation. <laughs> yeah, you drink that beer. non-alcoholic right. beer and you're like, I just received a revelation <laughs> that I should not drink this. <laughs> right. I, and I have people who are like, they absolutely, you know, people who've joined the church and friends I've known who've had it forever. And, and it was a really hard thing for them to be able to come in and, and to do that. Cause they've really, uh, they really enjoy it. I just, I don't, you know, on that, I think that we, we've had a lot of discussions about mode. I really like the way that it helps us conceptualize of these religious practices and that, you know, when someone is, is really changing their life around, you know, wanting to come into this new religious practice, having something that that they take out of their life that might be something very integral, like like alcohol or tobacco or, or you know, some sort of substance that's part of their regular habit, making that change along with this religious change uh, can mark it as very significant, can start them in a, a religious mode that can be very beneficial. 
that I think is is largely why there's there's been a lot of success with the concept of the word of wisdom as a a mode for religious conversion to the church because of how much it requires of a person for them to remove that from their life because of how much uh, it becomes a habit and part of it. So personally, you know, it's not to say that there's like some objective moral repugnance there, simply that it's a, again, a mode, a way of focusing your intention to uh, sacrifice and to change your life into that thing. Yeah, I like that a lot. See, in talking about modes as well, and one of the reasons why I like talking about modes, especially with the word of wisdom, you know, there's this internet meme that's been going on for a very long time, and I, I keep on seeing it pop up. It's one of my favorites. And it, it has a picture of the statue of Brigham Young at BYU. And it, and it's captioned and it says, so here's what I've been told during my decade in Utah. And it has a bunch of bullet points. It says, caffeinated sodas, they're okay, but coffee and tea are forbidden because of Mormon texts, which discourage quote unquote hot drinks. It's not about the caffeine. But hot chocolate is okay, despite being hot, because hot drinks really means brewed drinks. So iced tea and iced coffee, they're forbidden, despite being cold, because they're brewed. But herbal teas, hot or iced, are okay, despite being brewed, because there's no caffeine. (laughs) Come full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, come full circle. So anyone with further insight on the matter, please feel free to share. And, you know, I, I, I always laugh at this, because a part of modality is that there are some modes that just don't make any sense. You know, there there are so many religions that have, and, and sub-denominations that have very specific dietary restrictions. You know, Judaism has dietary restrictions. Um, Islam has dietary restrictions. Uh, most, most Christian denominations don't. But, and so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints really does stand separate in a lot of these ways. But using dietary restrictions as a modality of, of our religious experience of being able, using this as a moment to be able to, to push our intentionality and in through and to live with intentionality in these things. One of the things I think we need to recognize is that for modality and for these religious modes to be what they are, they don't need to be consistent. And I think in a lot of ways, what happens is that when we confuse modality as being an abject part of reality, we lose sight of what it actually is doing for us. We're creating that that mode is a thing in and of itself, as opposed to something that we construct to be able to to utilize that as, as a part of our religious observance. And so in this particular way, you know, the fact that the word of wisdom can be very inconsistent. And just for the fact that, Ben, in my life, I've met some people who the word of wisdom, that's like their soapbox. And I've had some really, really good friends that that is like the thing that speaks to them more about the gospel than anything else, because something speaks to them about the way their body feels and operates and that the word of wisdom speaks to them. And so they, they grasp a hold of this modality. And that's a very, very very powerful mode in their life. And that's and that's awesome. But there's also a lot of trying to argue to find a lot of consistency. And and the fact is is there's there's just not. Like for instance, coffee is not mentioned in this whole section. And but but it's like that was the interpretation later. 
And it had nothing to do really with being brewed at all. And in fact, what I really like about it too is that the whole reason why the word of wisdom, and I think we overlook this far too often, but the entire caveat for which the word of wisdom was given was as a principle and a promise, but because of the consequences of the evil designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. That's the context for this mode. It's like, why is this thing even being created? It's because of the evil designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. Now, what is what are those conspiring designs? Well, I, I don't know. But that is the purpose and the reason behind why this construct was given and for why we do it. And so for me, when I look at the word of wisdom, I think in a lot of times we I, I don't see objective sin in the word of wisdom. Now, we talked about it last week in that sin is very broadly defined as anything that weakens modality. So, th- so think about this for a little bit. If, if you are really doubling down on, on the modality of, of what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in your life, and all these sub-modes that they offer, these practices, these, these observances, um, such as the word of wisdom, and part of that is like, don't drink tea, don't drink coffee, don't smoke, don't drink alcohol. And if you go out and drink alcohol, or if you go out and you smoke, knowing that it's it's going against the mo- this this word of wisdom modality that you've constructed then at that point you're weakening the power of that mode in your life and so that can be considered sin anything that weakens the power of that mode is sin but the then we have this question that says is drinking alcohol universally evil is it universally a sin and the answer is unequivocally no. It's not a sin. It's not a sin. So this is why everyone else who has not covenanted it or has not promised to this, who does not utilize the word of wisdom as a modality of their religious experience, it's not a sin for them, right? Because that's not what they are constructing to have their experiences with God. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we are. And so that is sin to us. And so in that way, when we see Jesus Christ, and he, and, and this is where we get into some really bad, when we start to treat modality as a thing in and of itself, and we think that the word of wisdom is a thing in and of itself, and it has objective, and it shows objective sins, we extrapolate then that into all of past history. And that's where we make really, really, really bad claims, such as Jesus only drank grape juice, he never drank wine. Right, right. <laughs> you're like, you're like, no, just no, just don't do that. That's not a thing. Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus drank wine. When it says right there, clear in the text, that he turns water into wine and they're drinking wine, they're not drinking Welch's grape juice. Right? Martinelli's apple cider. It's just, that's not what they're drinking. It's fermented. That's the culture. That's the time. That's the way they do it. There's reasons for it. Culture, there's reasons for it for why they exist at the time because of like the water source you, you needed fermented beverages to be able to to uplift and to be able to to get you going for because they didn't know about bacteria and viruses that could live in the water and so fermented beverages had far less chances of being full of bacteria i mean they didn't know anything about that but it just it was a safer source of of liquids right 
And that's just one of a, of a dozen reasons why. So this is where our, when our religious modalities become things in and of themselves and we don't treat them as simply modes. You know, this goes back to, uh, I, I think I brought this up before about Marvel. Did, did I bring that up last week when we talked about modality, Ben? About uh, uh, Thor and his hammer? Oh, yes, you did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you know, just to reiterate, um, because I like I like Marvel, I really do. I like I'm I'm a Marvel guy. Um, I'm that kind of nerd. So so in Thor Ragnarok, where he has that moment, and I'll just bring it up again, where he's having a flashback, and his 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 Odin says, you know, are you Thor, the god of hammers? Because Thor broke his hammer, he doesn't have his hammer to defeat his sister anymore, and and just the, he goes, the hammer was never your source of power. He says it was there to focus your power. And it's in this exact, that's just religious modality. And that's really just modality in general. You know, we have things that we do that we focus our intentionality to and we produce real life experiences. And so in that way, the word of wisdom is a very powerful modality. And that's, and that's why other religions such as Judaism or in Islam, they have these things because when you really pour yourself into it, it can produce real life experiences. But the question is here is that uh, just going again back to the, it doesn't have to be entirely consistent. When you create a construct of a modality, it doesn't have to be completely 100% consistent and, you know, internally uh, consistent where it has no contradictions. That's not the point of a modality. It's just something that you choose to do because you're choosing to do it. And there's power in that if, if you just let, let it be what it's going to be that way. So this discussion reminded me of a quote from Stephen L. Richards, an apostle uh, back in the day of, of Heber J. Grant. And he, he kind of commented on the word of wisdom. And his broader point is actually really good, but he does specifically talk about the word of wisdom. He says, I do not mean to say that I doubt the wisdom of the word of wisdom. I know that it contains God's wishes and direction for the welfare of his children, and I am sure that those who fail to heed the teaching of it will lose blessings of great worth, but I am not sure that we have not estranged many from the church, or at least contributed to their estrangement, by attributing to violation of our standards of health, harmful as it may be, a moral turpitude and sinful magnitude out of proportion to the real seriousness of the offense." He later says, I have said these things because I fear dictatorial dogmatism, rigidity of procedure, and intolerance even more than I fear cigarettes, cards, and other devices the adversary may use to nullify faith and kill religion. Fanaticism and bigotry have been the deadly enemies of true religion in the long past. They have made it forbidding, shut it up in cold gray walls of monastery and nunnery, out of sunlight and fragrance of the growing world. They have garbed it in black and then in white, when in truth it is neither black nor white, any more than life is black or white. For religion is life-abundant, glowing life, with all its shades, colors, and hues, as the children of men reflect in the patterns of their lives the radiance of the Holy Spirit in varying degrees. Yeah, that's pretty good. I The first part about the word of wisdom I, I had remembered, but then I... When I ran across the quote, that second part was was pretty good. I decided to go ahead and read it. I mean, all, all that to say, I, mean, I think it goes along with what you're talking about, that this is, this is a particular religious mode that the Lord has given us. It brands us, right? <laughs> and it it's good as long as it's good. 
and we should use it as long as it's useful to us in drawing us closer to God. But we should not take it and use it as some sort of a a baton to beat anybody over the head with. Yeah, exactly. You know, in the New Testament, when when they're talking about that, it's not about what goes into the body that defiles us. It's what it's what comes out of the mouth, right? That that uh, that defiles us. It's the same kind of thing that it hasn't changed. You know, even the early Christians were like, "Well, we the old law was done. You know, was was satisfied and everything." So. Like eating pork, you know, is that a thing <laughs> anymore? <laughs> and so all of the dietary restrictions that they had before, and and this these kinds of conversations because they had, as Old Testament people, they had ontologicalized, as it were, the the mode of what these things were. They thought these were inherently, objectively immoral and sinful things. And they didn't recognize that they were just modalities that God had given them that in in abstaining from one thing or in in intentionally choosing another that that was the purpose of it to, to be able to infuse it you know we talked going back to uh was it section seven eight nine we're talking to oliver cowdery i think it's section eight when oliver cowdery is there with his with his divining rods and or his, his stick right or maybe his willow branch and he's he's doing things and he's witching for plates and from for other things and god's like you know what that thing that you're doing let's give purpose and meaning for that you know, that's a mode for you. You're pouring your intentionality into this thing. Let's, let's, you know what? Let's, let's give it some meaning. When you, now, Oliver, when you go out and do that thing that you're always doing, just kind of do it with an icing to my glory. Think about me when you're doing that and see what, see what happens. And, and so there's like this infusion of God into what Oliver is already going out and doing. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what these modes are trying to do. Um, and I, and we brought this up before with the whole youth program of the church that, I, I very much see this is what's going on with the whole shift of the youth program. So for those who are unaware, we've talked about this before, but the youth program of the church has changed in the last three three years or so in that we used to have this factory assembly line that we would send the youth through and they would be involved in, in the very specific church programs. Young women would be involved in the young women's program and the the young men would be involved in, the, in largely in the scouting program. And so you had awards and merits and 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 badges and and ranks and all these things. And so they were trying to teach you a skill and funnel you into these organizations, you know, the church's organizations. And it kind of became an assembly line of people that they started to to kind of spit out. But these these modes in this way of kind of shoving everybody into this funnel stopped working. And it wasn't working really well. And at least for myself, I was I was one of those super scouters. I got my Eagle Scout when I was before I was 14 and, and I earned my Eagle Scout. Like I, I worked on it tenaciously, <laughs> right? I was one of those kids that actually earned that Eagle Scout who, who like the, I, my parents did nothing for me. I, they drove me around everywhere. They supported me, but I did it. I did that. And it meant a lot to me that I did that. But as I've gotten older, I've seen how that scouting program across the church, cause I moved to so many wards and I was able to be involved in the young women's programs the scouting programs were falling apart everywhere. It was such a, just a, a, a drain on the wards. Uh, uh, it was a drain on the ward. And, and so the, there was a lot of wards that had a lot of turnover and it was frustrating to the scouting offices or frustrating the wards. And there just wasn't a support. It wasn't landing anymore. So the church has revised it. And so now the church message through this, this new program is to have the, the youth go out into their lives 
and into anything that they're excited about doing and infusing their own actions with the meaning of God and what they're doing in their lives. It's no longer let's funnel you into our program, but it's whatever you're doing, let's imbue that with meaning. And I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful way of being able to address our new world and what these new issues that the youth are having now that weren't even addressed before. And so I see that, that new type of modality of going out and infusing meaning into what we're doing with, with putting God into our lives, into all the things that we're doing, as opposed to having to funnel everything down into the specific church program. Agreed. I really like how, how that, the, the potential of that. I think, unfortunately, it was kind of rolled out and then, you know, COVID hit and I, a lot of wards maybe have, have struggled to to try to really make it something. But uh, I oh, think the yeah, potential no is there. <laughs> the potential for it, it being really something uh, fantastic is there. Yeah. Well, did you have anything else to say about Section 89? No. So, yeah, it just goes over wine and tobacco, hot drinks, herbs, um, the flesh of beasts. I definitely don't – we don't want to get into the, uh, the whole – meat eating conversation if christopher were here with us maybe he would (laughs) yeah maybe he maybe he would (laughs) you know and then grains the blessings there you know that's just how the the sections laid out but uh it's a beautiful verse a beautiful chapter a lot of beautiful verses there um really interesting into its context so if anybody's interested I i would definitely say study out its its historical context there's a lot of uh of meaningful modal context there and just the next time, you know, next time you're going over this, just see what becomes present in your life as far as your, for me, the number one thing here with the modality of the word of wisdom that I take from it, because I'm a really loose follower of the word of wisdom. I mean, let's just be honest. I don't eat meat sparingly. I, I have a burger at least once a week, right? Um, I, I think if Joseph Smith were writing this now, I think maybe some kind of like soda or caffeinated beverages. Some commentary if, if there, huh? <laughs> some commentary like high fructose corn syrup or like like <laughs> something, right? So, something's got to be violating the spirit of a law here somewhere with, with how much. Because I eat out at McDonald's an inordinate amount of time. Like I I've literally have stock in McDonald's because I eat there so much. I, I have my finger on. I, I don't, but no, the. I need to. So I go out there to, uh, cause I eat at McDonald's a lot and I don't think that's in line with the We're spirit. We're going to have to put another wisdom. disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast, <laughs> you know, besides the, besides the, the one that we already have about, we do not endorse McDonald's. <laughs> we don't endorse. No, we don't. And if I'm not at McDonald's, I'm at Taco Bell. And, and those are just the two places where I live and they know me and, and yeah, it Taco life is Bell's okay. a religious mode for me. It, yeah. See, it, it's just, it's the way it goes. And I know other people who, you know, that, that makes them physically convulse and, and they don't like that. But for me, it is coming down into becoming intentional with my life, with my, with my health. And, and, and the older I get, the more I become more intentional with it. And, and so I know a lot of people who are already there with their, with their health and with their dietary restrictions. I'm becoming more and more that way naturally. And so for me, the word of wisdom is getting a little bit more meaning in just the things that I'm becoming more intentional with, whereas in my youth, I wasn't. And so I can see more and more kind of in the spirit of the law where they were trying to go with that. And, and, and I, I think it's a beautiful thing. I just think that culturally, maybe, we take it too far when, and exactly for the same reasons from that quote you just gave, when we uh, make the word of wisdom as the objective, objective, objective law, 
yeah. as though this is the way it always were. And then we kind of vilify everybody accordingly who doesn't live up to it exactly the way that we think they should. Um, but I think we do that with all aspects of religion. So sure. maybe it's not so unique to the word of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, it's not. <laughs> so uh, moving into section 90, uh, we talked about how this is a discussion of the first presidency and kind of what it means um, and how you know Sidney Rigdon and, and Frederick G. Williams are, are to relate to, to Joseph Smith. So there's a lot of like administrative uh, type of commentary here. But one of the things that stood out to me was verse 11. And, and verse 11 says, For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language through those who are ordained unto this power by the administration of the comforter shed forth upon them for the revelation of Jesus Christ. So a lot of things to kind of uh, go through there. We often tie this prophecy of the gospel being preached in all the world and in their own tongues. This is mentioned, you know, all over in scripture. We we often, I think, point to the missionary program of the church as a fulfillment of this. And and I think there's there's probably something there, but we definitely see this at at a more expansive fundamental level with how technology has been able to reach people. And so I, I'm sure it will it just accelerate from here and you know in, in 50 years we'll look back and say, oh that was nothing, you know. <laughs> but um, if we if we look at how the internet and and like podcasts and and everything and, and the way that translation happens, um, stuff's happening in real time with with translation now and it's just getting better. People really are able to communicate and share ideas. And uh, what more important ideas are there than the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and hear it in their own language? And, and you know, we, we talk about that in terms of like, oh, you know, English and French and Spanish or Russian or whatever. But, but there's something more to our own language, right? It's not just like our, our vernacular, the language that we speak, but what is your language? You know, what speaks to you? What speaks to your heart? And I think that that there's more there to that. Like when when we can really uh, sit, have more meaningful discussions with others around us, or even you know, technology has brought people around the world to be able to have discussions together in, in a way that wasn't possible before. Then we really kind of get to the heart of that hearing it in your own language thing, right? Because again, it's not just what you know the your spoken language is but but what is the language of your soul and every person has a different language of their soul and that's why i like it brings in here by the administration of the comforter because that is where that language of our soul actually gets spoken and and what is the purpose of that shed forth upon them for in other words for the purpose of the revelation of jesus christ so that Christ can be revealed to us in our most fundamental language, the language of our soul, not just you know what language we speak. Yeah, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that one for a while. That whole speaking to us in our language, you know that that goes back to section one for me when he says that he speaks to us in our in our language and our understanding. And I think that's a, a really powerful remember thing that we need to remember that. These are the, the God is not there trying to to confuse us. He's not there trying to 
funnel us down into... Language is a fascinating conversation for me because, and I'm not a linguist by any stretch of the means. I, I, I just talk with a bunch of linguists, but when we all know, and anybody who's ever been on a mission where they've ever learned a second language, you know that there are entire ideas that exist in one religion that, or I'm sorry, in one language that don't exist in another. Yeah. That, that there are single words in one language that have this complex meaning that just don't exist in, in another language. And, you know, as I've, I've studied and I've looked through all just to find out there are Aboriginal tribes and that there are these other tribes that have, that have never had contact with the, the greater world before that once we have come into contact with them and kind of gotten to know their language and everything, they don't have a language for like a mathematical language for like one, two, three, four, five. And I was like, how do you not have a language for that? And it's just their, their language did not in, involve that their lifestyle didn't necessitate that you communicate in that way so correct yeah and so it the language inhibits them a little bit from being able to progress and so we don't realize the power of language to communicate ideas and that whereas language is powerful enough and to be logically consistent and and what i mean by that is that's a very philosophical statement in that predicate logic can happen. We can actually show axioms. And I had to do this when I was a philosophy student at BYU. Um, th- we had to be able to show that language was powerful enough to be consistent with itself and, and, to, and to prove things and to be logical. And so we have language that, that has this power to express crazy ideas, but yet it can also be a glass ceiling. Because we can't reach beyond the capability of our language. It's also a, this conversation that's come up before about what is the most powerful language on earth now? And, and so there's a reason why Greek philosophy became the philosophy that is, it's reason why philosophy like that came through the Greeks because Greek, the Greek language was strong enough to support those ideas. Now, Latin was also strong enough to be able to to then bring those ideas over to Latin, but a lot of these ideas didn't originate in Latin. They originated in Greek. And Greek was the language powerful enough to do that. And in our modern sense, most of the Enlightenment came through, ended up coming through, and, and, the, and the philosophy we're still grappling with came through German. Because German has certain traits in its language that allows it to be able to deal with really complex ideas. Now, English is powerful enough that we can translate it into English and try to grapple with those ideas, but English wasn't the originating language. And, you know, there's right now, for instance, there is so much being done in the philosophy of religion that's coming from French. The, 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 the French is being able, has, just has so many nuances in French that support this new discussion about what's happening in the philosophy of religion. And so we, we're able to translate it and get those ideas over, but these ideas originate in kind of in a certain lingua franca. And so when God comes down and he deals with us in our language and our understanding, I find so, how does a, a uni, such a universal God do that? Come down to such a, such a level on us, down to our, our most basic level and to be able to speak with us there. You know, one more, for instance, there are certain tribes that have never developed the concept of giving directions by right or left. 
they use cardinal directions. You say, yeah, you go east this this long, then you go north that long, then you go south this long, then you go then you go west, and so they use the four cardinal directions because no matter how you stand, those are just the four cardinal directions, right? But if you're looking at me and I'm go and, and I'm pointing, I'm like, oh yeah, it's on it's on the right. Well, my right is your left, and so using right and left is sometimes very egocentric, and 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 it comes more from dominant uh, um, individualist societies. And so it's just, it's, it's fascinating how language develops this way as opposed to others and about the things we don't even recognize that we take, for instance, about how language informs the way that we see reality in ways that we don't even recognize. It becomes the very mechanism by which we see the world and interpret the world and speak about the world. And we don't realize the power of how language shapes our perceptions of reality. But yet God speaks to us in that language to be able to have experiences and we've talked about this before, Ben, to point, because at best, these experiences that we have with God are beyond the scope of language. We see this in the scriptures, and we talked about it when we did the Book of Mormon, like with the the children there, and it says, you know, such great things that were done that words cannot express them, language cannot express them. We've talked about tasting the salt of the gospel. You can't communicate with words what salt tastes like. There's just certain things you cannot communicate with words and language. But yet that's what we're, that's what we're getting at. This whole Latter-day Peace Studies project is about pointing towards that thing about God that you, we cannot use words to be able to explain. All, all we can do is just kind of point and be like, it, it's that thing. And I don't have any language or for it. Or it's in that direction. <laughs> yeah, it's, or it's in that direction. It's it, it's like it's it's, it's over it's, that it's, hill. I don't even know. It, yeah, I don't even know. But it, it's it's over there. It, it's that thing over there. It's like, well, what is it? I don't. I don't. I can't even say. It's just. It's over there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I love the. I love that language to con- conversation and discussion. Yeah, um, I I get into it quite a bit as well. Um, having studied languages, it's it's a fascinating discussion. You know, as you were talking, though, I I, I remembered. One of the ways that I have uh, described uh, the situation of my son. So some may not know, like uh, my oldest son, we adopted when he was six years old and he was uh, severely neglected, uh, didn't hear spoken language until he was brought into foster care at about two years old and then went from house to house. And all that to say that he he has a severe impediment in the way that he both can speak and understand language. And so it, I kind of always describe it as that, you know, English is his second language and we don't really know what his first language is. You know, it, obviously there's something there, but we don't know what it is. And I just have to say that I look forward to the day when I can understand his language and really communicate with him because so much is lost in his attempts to communicate with me or my attempts to communicate with him through a language that's that's not his first language. You know, there there are moments though, like there are times and moments when there is real communication there. And it and it and it makes me realize, you know, that 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 language exists. It's just sometimes difficult to find and hit that frequency, right? Like I said, I look forward to the day that that we can actually communicate in in whatever language it is that he really understands. Yeah, that's powerful. 
Well, Ben, here you be when we were talking before, um, you had brought in this discussion here of, of verse two and three. We talked about keys, but keys are, keys are an idea that's being developed. This is, this is not an idea that it, it's not where we are at when right now with our, with our knowledge of keys, right? Sure. Or the, you know, the discussion okay. of priesthood keys that we have. There, there's something different then. And in fact, I was, uh, on a completely separate note. I was going through the book of commandments today and, and figuring out, cause I wanted to know when section 13 of the DNC was added. Um, but come to find out is that most of the way that our scriptures are laid out now is not the same way they were laid out with the book of commandments, right? So the book of commandments had a lot of different revelations in different orders than what we have it now. And in fact, come 1834, the, ne- the year after. So the first Book of Commandments is in 1833. Then in 1834, there started to be a lot of dissensions. And it looks like the church was about ready to split in Missouri. And so there were a lot of revelations. There were a lot of talk about really formulating the ideas of priesthood authority and, and priesthood power and what priesthood is from a governing standpoint and the institutional aspects of priesthood. And so this is where a lot of those ideas are formed in order to answer these dissensions and keep the church from splitting apart in Missouri. And so by the time the 1835 edition comes along, we have a lot more, a lot more to say on priesthood up front. So it's, and even right now, our current DNC, it's front loaded with a lot of discussions on priesthood. Mm-hmm. And so that, that I don't know if that's really by accident that that was put there because that's what they were dealing with. They needed to come up with ways of being able to show how and why this priesthood authority. And so we have this evolution of thought, but here we are in 1833 before that major schism begins to happen. And so our concepts of priesthood here are not the same as they're going to really have been developed by 1834 or five, because we also have to remember that that whole John the Baptist and Peter, James and John visitations of angels story that's not that's not a thing that's publicly addressed yet. Right. right. That, that, yeah, so that's not going to come until 1834, 1835, where those stories come into the text. And usually those things are brought up in order to answer these things going on in Missouri. And then it starts coming out more and more and get into the text. So at this point, these keys of priesthood are a little bit different. And then oracles. You had something really interesting to say about uh, oracles, Ben, about how, how the... You know, of how they're taken or they're given. Why don't you say a little Did bit? Did I that? have something interesting? <laughs> Mine was more of a question. I was, I was, uh, when we were discussing it, it was like, I was looking for something interesting. <laughs> I, th- I, I thought you found me. <laughs> well, so in here, you know, we, we often, I, I've heard it in regular vernacular of, of the church, regular discussion of the church of the word oracle being used to refer specifically to a person or a, a prophet, right? And, and even in the footnotes here, we see things, the footnote says mission of prophets or rejection of prophets, right? But the the way that the, the verses actually flow, these oracles are something separate from the person, right? They're more just like a mantle. So I guess that makes sense, mission of prophets, maybe that that fits. These are more like a, a mantle, you know, how, if, if an oracle is a prophet, how can verse four make sense through you shall the oracles be given to another. And so in like a mythological sense, an oracle was like a prophet or, a, um, you know, some, something that, you know, we have the story of Socrates going to the oracle, right. Or, or different, different people and 
in uh, Greek history going to, to oracles and, and then they would like sort of prophesy and say these things about them. These things that were going to come to pass, sometimes they'd be ambiguous or cryptic. And so you have to kind of decide, well, what does this really mean? And so all that to say in this context that I, I was trying to really grapple with what it was that was meant or what was not necessarily meant because the intended meaning can be a lot of things <laughs> is, is really difficult to hammer down. But what it was it that at the time was understood by this concept. And it kind of was wrapped up in this concept of the keys that, that this is something that is is developing. And so it's not clear to me whether oracles is referring to like a metaphysical passing of a responsibility, or maybe oracles is referring to something specific, like, you know, Joseph Smith used certain objects, seer stones in particular were a thing for him. And so I didn't know if, if I'd be interested to know if there's some more context to this if the oracles really are referring to, could be referring to seer stones, right? Or, or whatever these, these methods were that they were using through which the, the revelations were, were coming in order to aid them in that. So I, I, I'm just not sure. Like I said, I, I don't know if it was anything interesting to say as so much as a question that was looking for something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like the questions anyway. Yeah, I, I think we talked about something about the mantle, it being more of like a mantle, a passing of a mantle. I like that, you know, the idea there about uh, the seer stones there too. So, yeah, interesting. So, anything else you have to say about 90, Ben? I like the last couple verses of 90, and uh, the the word choice is a little odd, but the actual overall idea is really beautiful. So, uh, verses 36 and 37, but verily I say unto you, that I, the Lord, will contend with Zion and plead with her strong ones and chasten her until she overcomes and is clean before me, for she shall not be removed out of her place. Here we have Zion personified as this woman, you know, the church or whatever. But this, this to me can obviously be taken down to the personal level. And we have this word contend, which, like I said, I, I I don't, it seems an odd word to use in this context because contend is the root of contention. And, you know, when Christ comes to the Nephites, he says, contention is not of me. So obviously we've got some overlapping in meaning here. We don't mean contend in a contentious way. We mean contend in, in like an Enos struggle, wrestle with the spirit way or an Alma struggling in the spirit way, right? Where, where our will is, is being put to the test. Like we are trying to decide within ourselves if our will is going to be uh, united with God or if we're going to go another way. And so it, it's beautiful here that the Lord says, I will contend with Zion, you know, that he's there with us and that he's constantly seeking to persuade us to unite our will with God. And so the that's borne out in the next words here. It says, and plead with her strong ones, right? And strong ones is interesting because you know, our will, we talk about strength of will. And so I think that those words are appropriate here because we, the strength of our will is, is an important thing if it's directed in, in, the right, in the right direction towards being united with the will of God. Chasten her until she overcomes and is clean before me for she shall not be removed out of her place. That promise, 
we talked about promise and covenants multiple times in here, that the Lord is saying he's going to be there with us and sit with us and plead with us and try to persuade us forever, for she shall not be removed out of her place, because we are promised that we will receive our inheritance as children of God. So, like I said, the the word choice is a little uh, slightly off here for me, but when you read these verses and and consider the imagery that's going on here and and how the Lord is is interacting with the per- person, I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, I like what you said there. No, so there there is verse twenty four. I forgot to, I had Mark twenty four there. There were a couple things there. It says, "Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good." If you walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. All right, so there's a couple things I wanted to, to bring out here because I think a lot of times in in the culture of the church we we end up having this way of viewing the gospel because it's the good news of Jesus Christ, but we end up positing that if you are righteous and doing things right, you're going to be happy. Like wickedness never was happiness, right? So. If, if you're not happy, that means you're wicked. And right. if you're righteous, that means you're happy. And I think what happens, I, I, I don't discount what the scriptures are saying. It's that I think there's a lot of nuance I, of, of what we call the human experience that tells us that our common interpretation of what that's trying to say is, it's very lacking. Not very well, accurate. L- l- yeah, not very accurate. It's lacking. It's lacking a lot of context. And in fact, it's lacking such context that it, I believe it's actually harmful for a lot of people who are going through trauma. Yeah. And so there is actually a way that we use the scriptures about wickedness never was happiness and about how, yeah, about how we're supposed to be happy when we're righteous, that when our lived human experience is not that way. That the way the construct is built for us, the way the mode is being built for us culturally, that there must be something wrong with us. So we see it here a little bit. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things will work together for your good. And so we tend to think, and what this usually ends up implying, is that God is bringing us down into the depths of like bad experiences, and so all the things that we're going through bad, we're being either punished or that so, you know something bad is going to be there, so that we will have some kind of euphoric good thing on the outside of that. And so we have all of these, these metaphors set up, you know, the mulberry metaphor, you know, you know, of, of the branches being cut back because it needs to, about things being purged and going through the refiner's fire. And so we have all of these examples about how we have to go through all of these problems in order for us to come out euphoric at the end of it. And so it's like there's meaning at the end of the tunnel. I think there's usefulness in these metaphors and in these allegories, but I also think that for many people, this way of viewing the gospel is not only unhelpful, but it's actually very destructive to people's faith and to people's relationship with God. So in a different way of looking at this, searching diligently, praying always, and believing are three independent modes. To to be able to search for something Searching is in itself a mode. It's, it's something that you're, you're focusing your intentionality to, to search. 
Prayer is also a mode. You're pouring your intentionality into that moment to be with God, to communicate, to open yourself up with the divine and to let whatever is going to be there be there and whatever is going to be manifest, manifest. My most beautiful moments in prayers with God I've learned is when there is nothing, where I open myself to the divine and I feel this, it's almost like a void. And it was disconcerting at first, but over time, I've come to find so much beauty there in that, in that silent, almost nothingness, where in the nothingness is everything for me. And so I have a, I, I've developed a relationship with God in that way of praying and also believing. We have to be careful about the things we believe in and not necessarily in the things we believe in, but in how we believe in them as well. Because we have to be responsible with our beliefs and how our beliefs affect others. We will be held accountable for how our beliefs affect others. So in this, search diligently, pray always, and be believing. And all things will work together for your good. (sighs) I'm just going to pause at this and, and throw this out there. When we talk about all things being for our good, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a joyful, jubilant, happy moment. In my life, I've come to realize that there is as much divinity in my sadness and my trauma as there is there is in my moments of happiness and joy. I've come to see an experience with God where God is in my trauma and he's in my pain and he's in my sorrow. And it's not to say that God is the author of it and it's not to say that God causes it and it's not to say that God is weak because he is powerless to prevent it. But reality being what reality is, I have experienced a God that suffers with me and that is there next to me. And I've talked about this a lot before. So in this way, to search diligently and pray always and be believing, I think these are three very powerful modes that as we begin to, whatever modality we want to create for ourselves to be able to then go out and experience God in new and wondrous ways, these are like some of the three biggest pillars of being able to create meaningful modalities. Searching, praying, and believing. And the more we believe in these things, the more that they become they become something to us that's meaningful. And through that meaning, we produce something. And it's in that creation of that experience that we end up having these experiences with God. And that those experiences are good. Now, there are times that I have searched diligently, I have prayed, and I have believed, and I have found sorrow. But yet, I can still pronounce it good. And it's not because of sin. It's not because of a lack of modality. It's because I am strengthening my modality. And so that's why we have to be really, really careful in how we use that sadness is because of sin. It's, that's not the way that I I understand why we talk about it in that way. And there's, there's a good reason why we talk about it in that way. But also there is a damaging way that we talk about it in that way that we have to be able to address. Just because you're sad, or just because you're experiencing pain, just because life sucks, does not mean that you are sinning. You can be actively searching, actively praying, and actively believing, 
and still in sadness and pain. And that's okay. That's, that's good too. Now that I have to be very careful with how I say this because at some point it, we, it's not to reinforce trauma for the sake of saying that bad things, bad things happening to us are working for our benefit. Yeah. That, that's where language gets tricky because it's not to validate, for instance, it's not to validate abuse. If we're in an abusive relationship or an abusive situation, it's not a validation to stay in that abusive relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. And I've seen some people try to pull it that way and to think that that's what that means. And it's not. But it means that in our lives, as we go through the complexities of our lives, we're just going to, we're going to have moments where we wake up and we're just, it's a sad day. We're going to have a week or a month where it's just, it's a sad day or a week or month. We go through valleys and mountains in our lives. So this is not to be able to justify abusive things and things that are bad and to stay there and to say that God is there in your, in your being abused. And so just staying in an abused situation. That's not this at all. It's to recognize that simply because we have sad days does not mean that it's because of our sin. Sometimes even Jesus wept. So when we do that, walking uprightly, remembering the covenant which we have made, those are also very helpful tools to establishing modalities and to be able to find faith and, and belief in, in certain modalities. So anyway, it was a conversation I wanted to have there with that, with searching diligently, praying and believing, and what that means to things working for our good. It doesn't always have to be that it's always going to be rainbows and puppies, and although I love rainbows and puppies... <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't have to land there every single time. God is there in, in everything that we go through. And it's such a, it's such a hard thing to, for me to use language to communicate without, without telling someone who's going through in pain. Cause, cause that's one of the things that when I've gone through my own, my own traumas, for someone to say, Hey, God's there with you. I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> or it's, it, it's, it's like, this is going to work for your good. I'm like, just go away. Like, like those things are not helpful for someone actually in that experience of trauma. For someone who's experiencing trauma, you just sit with them and you see them and you listen to them. It's like, don't, in our effort to try to be with people in trauma, we want to try to pick them up to be happy. But sometimes it just requires being there with them, Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's more of what I'm trying to get. Hopefully I've been able to communicate that in a way that that lands. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it, it's not that we ever in life seek after sorrow or seek after pain or seek after trauma. These aren't things that we desire, but we know they're part of life and they're part of our experience. And because God is who he is, and he made us who we are, that means all of these things will be part of our experience. And in the end, whatever the end is, <laughs> ultimately, what will happen is because they are part of our experience, they will become part of who we are and, and can be pronounced good. Not because of the nature of the thing, but because of the nature of us. Not because of what happened to us, but because of who we are and who God is. 
you know, in Doctrine and Covenants 133, it says, all these things shall give the experience and be for your good. Again, we don't seek these things out. They are just part of our existence. They are part of life. And because of who we are, and again, because of our relationship with God, these things can be made good. Again, not because of the nature of them, but because of the nature of us. So section 91, this is a discussion of the Apocrypha. All right, so Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is capitalized. It's referring to a specific set of books of scripture that are canonized in some religious traditions and not in others. Now, we make Apocrypha an adjective and we say apocryphal, and that can refer to all kinds of different writings, including the things that we call the Apocrypha. And so I think it can get a little bit confusing here. You can refer to something of scripture as apocryphal, and that doesn't mean that it is included in the capital A Apocrypha. The capital A Apocrypha typically is referring to a specific set of apocryphal writings. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so all that to say, you know, there's these certain books, particularly of the Old Testament, that were included in some religious traditions like Judaic traditions and not others when they did different translations and compilations. Catholics kept some, Protestants got rid of some others. You know, the the Latter-day Saint movement being largely an outgrowth of, of these Protestant, particularly American Protestant reformations and, and great awakenings is going to, in a lot of ways, follow that Protestant religious tradition. However, as they're trying, you know, digging up and, and accepting scripture, they this gets opened, this question gets opened up again. And there's lots of discussion and debate, not just within you know, the Latter-day Saint tradition, but broader Christianity, especially in the United States, about what to do with these this apocrypha, these apocryphal writings. Are these scripture? Are these not scripture? And so this question basically gets posed to Joseph, and it's particularly interesting in the context of, of the Latter-day Saint tradition because Joseph Smith himself is brought about the Book of Mormon, right? And he's and he's bringing about Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, and all of these, and, and then specifically like the Book of Enoch, in that book of Moses, which is refer- is referenced in certain places in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but we have no book in the official canon of the Bible. And so Joseph Smith brings this about, and the, the questions raised, okay, so what is and isn't scripture? What's valid and what isn't? So do we go to these apocryphal writings and, and do we canonize them, or do we not canonize them? And... Um, the, probably the jury's still out on that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, all of that to say, this section, the way that it talks about the Apocrypha, to me, is how I would just talk about Scripture in general. Like, every time you would say Apocrypha, I'd just say Scripture. <laughs> there are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. I mean, you can say that about any Scripture. And quite frankly, you can even say that about the Book of Mormon, because Joseph Smith wasn't perfect. And we're constantly finding things that are a little off here and there. And even Mormon and Moroni admit that they made mistakes and probably made mistakes. Okay, So mostly translated correctly, right? 
And and by the way, we've got this word translated, which means about five different things to apparently to Joseph Smith. And so <laughs> so this is there's a whole there's a whole lot of baggage with that word as well. And then verse two, there are many things contained therein that are not true. Okay. Quite frankly, when we come across scripture and and even in, especially in the Latter-day Saint tradition, the way that the Old Testament is approached is is very um is suspect the right word? What do we have? The the eighth article of faith that we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. This is kind of the origin of that concept of that 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 view of the Bible is that it's like, yeah, it's kind of true, right? <laughs> as far as it is translated correctly, there are many things that are not true, which are interpolations by the hands of men. Okay. This is you know, Nephi goes off on this. Right in terms of things that plain and precious truths that were taken out and and stuff, and so this isn't just how the apocrypha is conceptualized in Latter Day Saint thought. This is actually how most scripture is conceptualized in Latter Day Saint thought. We try not to apply it so much to the Book of Mormon because we have statements like you know it's the most true book, but but quite frankly, it does apply to the Book of Mormon. And then the more you study the Doctrine and Covenants, the more you realize it applies to the Doctrine and Covenants as well. And so um, I, I really, really ironically like Section 91 because of the way that it treats this concept of, of Scripture. And I think it's very useful to us to, to view it that way as we approach Scripture. And I, I think we can get a lot more out of it by, by understanding it in this way than we do in a in a more fundamentalist way. Yeah, I I agree. I am um, when we look at the scriptures not necessarily as um well, you know what's the what's the better word to to use it there um absolutist. Yeah. Literal. Little literal. Here's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> When we when we look at the scriptures literally, uh, that's one way of interpreting it, and that's really the the very beginning. That's kind of the primary way of doing uh, of looking at scripture. So if you if you look at reading scripture and how you can read scripture and come to scripture and its intent, uh, that's like kindergarten. You know, uh, uh, that's where you start with it. You know, literal scriptures was, and then by second grade or third grade, we should kind of mo- be moving beyond the literalness of this. And, and seeing it differently to where if it's literal, awesome, that's fine. But the chances are it's, it wasn't written for that purpose and it's not. <laughs> so that, and, and in the, and in the latter days, we have a lot of the, you know, Joseph Smith and we have a lot of stories and a lot of narratives and experiences that show that there is a literal aspect to it. Like, did Noah really exist? Did Moses really exist? Well, we have visitations from them in Kirtland and, and those kinds of experiences. So without discounting those, we can say, sure, maybe these people did really absolutely exist. Scholars right now are really in the air about, did Job exist? And in fact, they pretty much concluded that no, there wasn't really a person named Job. And in fact, even I, I've been reading, there's a bunch of, uh, people I know on social media that are involved with the church and with the correlation department who've been dealing with, uh, with the Old Testament coming up. And in this new Old Testament, uh, come follow me, they've, they've taken out, for instance, any references to the age of the earth that were used to be in there about trying to kind of show the dates of the age of the earth. 
They've also taken out any references to specific authors of the text. Like, for instance, Moses, you know, to say that Moses wrote this, or specifically that Isaiah wrote this particular verse in an absolutist way, because there's so much that we don't know if that that specific person wrote that. And that's interesting from the perspective of the Book of Mormon, because, you know, we have Mormon that's compiling all these records that, you know, may have been compilations of previous people who were compiling, you know, we don't know how many times these things have been recompiled and retranslated. And so, you know, even from our religious tradition, we have to accept that, you know, there's no requirement that we we tie a specific word or scripture to a specific person as opposed to just saying, okay, the origin of this story may have been this person, but but there's a whole lot of uh, hands that it could have passed through in the meantime. So, Sure. Yeah. Maybe we can even posit that what what Nephi got as Isaiah may have been somebody else by his time that, that was a scribe or something or somebody post Isaiah. We, we just don't know. But, uh, but the church is definitely getting to be more... Uh, sensitive to that conversation. And so those kinds of things are taken out. The the absolute literalisms that we used to hold very ardently to in the day and age of uh, like Joseph Fielding Smith or Bruce R. McConkie, who were very literalist in their scriptural um, interpretations, that those things are beginning to soften. Because as we, as we progress and we begin to realize that the literalist religious perspectives as from the scriptures themselves is we're, we're almost treating scripture you know, I'm being kind by saying almost when, when I, I really believe <laughs> <laughs> completely that when we treat scripture literally that way, we're treating it in a way that it wasn't even created to be that way. And so we miss this more. What I find is even a more beautiful point. And we've talked about this before about things that are more true than if they actually happened. Right. And so that, that's really where I find beauty in the scripture of those things that I find are more true than if they even actually happened. And to start looking at scripture that way. Yeah. So, I mean, this section really bears that out. Whoso readeth it, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth. And whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. So, uh, you know, that that's just really good advice on, on how we go about looking and studying, looking at and studying the scriptures. And, you know, I look forward to a day when we can include apocryphal writings in our scriptural canon. I mean, if we can include a lot of the things that we have in the Old Testament in our scriptural canon, we certainly can include some of these apocryphal things because, (laughs) you know, um, like I said, particularly in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of stuff in there that that was never even written to – its original intent was never to be sacred writing, right? Like Chronicles, right? This is – this is chronicles. These aren't these aren't meant to be like sacred writings. These are just meant to be chronicles. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> but by but by definition of what, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I get it. Now, in section ninety two, um, so Frederick G. Williams is included into the United Order, the United Firm, and that's uh, that's a pretty cool little tidbit of history. Yeah, that's about all there is to say about that. The word order is used here. Uh, originally, it was firm. Um, because it was uh, really conceptualized as a business uh, venture in order to aid the saints uh, originally. So then it got changed to order. And then the concept of United Order got morphed into this idea of a, a like a law of consecration type of thing. But it, that wasn't what it was. 
originally, um, at least in our, at least the conceptualization that we would have of it now is not what it, it started out as. So, right. Well, very good. Well, Ben, I have nothing more to talk about. Okay. What about you? No, I'm done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, join us next week. We will be going over section 93. So 93 gets in. It's a, it's another, it's not as long as uh, like an 84 and 88. It's another but, uh, 88 you know, there's, there's a- section though. It kind of gets into some of that, you know, metaphysical, mystical stuff. Yeah, yeah. So 93 is going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of things to talk about. So those few pages, those uh, I'm looking at it right now, it's like what, four pages are going to are gonna pack uh, quite a bit of uh, discussion. So I look forward to it. Me too. Awesome. Well, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>